0: Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We are your hosts, David O.
1: And Eric V.
0: Today we are joined by our guest, Sandra. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm very well today, thank you. Good. Where are you from, Sandra? Dublin, Ireland. Dublin, Ireland. Love it. I thought it was an Irish accent, but I wasn't sure and I didn't want to offend so I didn't I, I waited for you to let me know
2: <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying I don't have an accent but people keep telling me I do so yeah Oh, the, the, the
0: Irish accent is one of the sweetest things on the planet and I absolutely adore it Oh, thank you thank you so when were you first introduced to recovery
2: so I would have known about recovery um Oh, I, I mean, I knew people who got into recovery many, 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 many years ago, but they never stayed, mm-hmm. never stayed in mm-hmm. recovery, so um, I just knew people stopped drinking for periods of time, they called it a recovery, but, um, yeah, it's not recovery as I, I would understand it today. My own recovery journey was very, um, very quick start, was starting to test going, and that was back in 1995.
0: So how long have you been sober?
2: It was 25 years this year. Lockdown, lockdown celebration is 25 years. Oh,
1: congratulations. Accessible.
0: congratulations. Thank That's you. That's awesome. And uh, with all that out of the way, we're going to turn it over to you to share your story with us. But take it away.
2: Lovely. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sandra, and I'm an alcoholic. And I got sober back in March of 1995 and I do remember this specific date because it came just after my sister's 40th birthday. I hope she doesn't listen to this because then she'll know I've given her age well. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> she, she forgives me, she loves me, she loves me. Um, and my sister is very instrumental in my recovery journey so you'll we, we'll be hearing a lot about her. But, um, that, that date is very significant for me because Uh, My life changed for so many, 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 many reasons. Um, And if I was to take that date back in 1995, and when I picked up my first drink, obviously there's no comparison. My first drink was 12. And Mm. when I picked up that drink, it was a party in the house, and it was where there was alcohol in our house. Actually, I tell a lie. My mother had the obligatory um, decanter in in the glass cabinet that nobody ever mm-hmm. cooked and nobody drank, but it was this showpiece that was there. But that would have been the only alcohol that was in the house, you know? So, mm-hmm. so to have a party and being 12 and all the adults around and they're all singing and dancing, and it was quite a, a, an enjoyable evening, you know? People were enjoying themselves. The it yeah. yeah, wasn't, yeah, it was nice. It was quite nice. And um, I decided to get a glass and pour a little bit of a drink in just to see what it was like. And I remember thinking, if I make it look like an orange float, so I, I had a, another sister who used to give us this kind of orange drink and pour a slab of ice cream into it, a block of ice cream into it, and we just call that orange float. I'm sure it's a similar name around mm-hmm. the world. And, and I thought if I could do that, then nobody would know I was drinking. So yeah. that's what I did. I poured God only knows what was in the glass, drank it. I immediately got drunk. And my friend noticed that I wasn't quite myself, decided to take me out for a breath of air, where I went straight into a blackout. And I vomited all over the place, all over her, all over me, all over the other people that were there. And when I was put to bed, the room was and I vomited again. So so my introduction to drink was, um, uh, it would be, you would think that people would go, oh God. You wouldn't be doing that again now after all of that.
3: Mm-hmm. No, no, it was,
2: it was, it was something when I woke up the next morning, I was like, oh my God, oh Jesus, I'm dying. Like, you know, I felt like the arse was falling out of me. <laughs> honest to don't ask me where this came from, but when I came down the stairs, people had gone, they'd left. There was whatever, somebody had tidied up the kitchen, there was tons of stuff left, you know, tidied up and all that sort of stuff. And I went and I opened up a can of, um, uh, of ale, um, that was there and I drank it. Now don't, guys, don't ask me where that came from. I have n- I'd never seen that. That was not part of my upbringing. So I don't know why the hair of the dog was, was part of my drinking, but it was. Oh, yeah.
3: Um,
2: yeah, yeah. And it would become a, a, a significant part of, of my drinking uh, all the way through. So yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's one of those things where you, you kind of think, that's madness. But at the time, it, it just, it's just, you have to have, you just have to do, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I suppose part of the story gets a little bit kind of mothers now or a little bit kind of difficult because um, I, I suppose I want to state very clearly now that I'm not saying this made me an alcoholic. But what I am saying is, this is all the stuff i drank on. This is all the stuff that was unresolved and I wasn't even addressed in any way, shape or form. I had nowhere to go with it. I had no one to talk to. I didn't understand what it was. And when I drank, all of that went away. And I felt extremely powerful there to take on the world. But my, my childhood was quite um, uh, challenging, like a lot of other people's childhood. My father was a paranoid schizophrenic. And he was, he was in and out of hospital from the time I was five. There would have been yeah. problems with him before and his mental health and that sort of stuff. But what had happened in the house was he'd go into hospital when he would be unwell. My mother uh, couldn't manage uh, him being out because it was just so stressful. Her blood pressure would go through the roof. So when he came out of hospital, she went in. And then when he went back into hospital, she came out. You know, so there was this type team of parenting going on. But there wasn't really parenting It was people who were your parents, they are, Mm but
3: they
2: are real parents, you know. My older sister, Mary, who referred to earlier on, was was really the parent. So there was a lot of that, that chaos that goes with mental health issues and not being treated properly or misunderstood. It was way back in the 70s, you know, so we we didn't have the kind of community support that we have now, you know, thanks to the community support now. So, um, So he would have received quite serious, electric shock treatment and high doses of medication just to sedate them, you know? Uh, but, but, but there was a lot of violence that came with his particular um, element of, of illness and one of them was, it was mostly himself who tried to take his own life several times and the last time he was successful, he did take his own life, but he took his own life after he attacked uh, two of my siblings and one of those siblings died as a result of our injury. Oh,
3: so,
2: wow yeah so in 24 hours two people gone gone out of your life you know yeah. um and then um, my mother died five years later and um i i actually woke up we shared the bed after daddy died and the house was moved around and all that sort of stuff you know um mm-hmm. and i woke up and found her dead beside me in the bed now both of these events are bad enough on their own but there was a, a common denominator with these events. I had had a bit of a well. Now I was only 10 when my father died right so it wasn't really a well. It was 10, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he bent down to give me a kiss going to school. He'd be an easy mm-hmm. with butter on it. I don't like butter and stomach smell of it let alone eat it. And I was like Ugh! you know, disgusting butter as you do when you're 10, you know? And um, yeah, <laughs> And walked out going, I'm never talking to you again, I hate you, la la la. And then that day he he was dead. And he was dead, and then the next day my sister was dead. So I immediately internalized this as, (gasps) if I hadn't have said that, if I had my wife just kissed away, he'd still be alive.
0: Oh, wow. Yes. kind Kind of like a survivor's guilt kind of thing?
2: Absolutely. That's it. That's it, exactly. Yeah. And then a similar situation with my mother, I had a row with her over something really ridiculous, like not doing a chore or something like that, making the bed or washing the belt or something to effect, you know, something really minor. And then I wake up and she's dead the next day. So I have all of this, this in my head, incorrectly, obviously, but in my head that I I make people die. And I have three people who are dead now because of this power that I have, you know. so, so and, I and you were, what, 15 when your mother I think, died? Yeah, I, I literally had just turned 16 when my mother died, yeah. Yeah. Jeez. And um, and I was already drinking at that point. So, so the drinking had started at 12 at the house party. It had mm-hmm. become a regular feature. Uh, at the weekend, they used to go roller skating and we'd go to the pub across the way. Now, I was 12, I was getting served in pubs at 12. Bonkers. And, uh. um, and, and so that was on a Sunday, and then it very quickly escalated where I was weekend drinking very, very regularly at 12, 14, 14. And 14. I was going into school hungover and weekly the booze and I smoked at the time as well, I was, I, I took, you know, took up smoking, as you do, you know, um, mm-hmm. so, so there would have been all of that going on, all of that, that adolescent stuff, all of that emotional family stuff, all the not understanding what the hell was going on, and then put food and that, you know, it was just, it was just a fire, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, so Rosie, as we call her affectionately, Rosie died, um, that was 1982, so, uh, so she died and I was actually walking at the time. I was working full time. I left education and I was walking a year by the time she died. And um, uh, and that was it. It, it. it took off. Like when I say it took off, it was like a rocket going to the moon. And um, mm. very quickly, very, very quickly, I was uh, bringing the, the booze into the workplace. There were several times actually I brought booze into school with me and drank it around with a bike shed smoking at lunchtime, you know, so it wasn't unusual for me to, to do that. And, yeah. uh, and and that was it then. I, I literally, every penny I had with guys, every every penny went on booze. Every idea that I had about being a friend centered around booze, uh, you know, if, if everything was counted in how many drinks I'd get and how long I'd. Get out the money and all that sort of stuff. And my friends, on the other hand, were buying makeup and clothes and magazines and going to the cinema. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I I couldn't even imagine spending money on that. That was just ridiculous to be spending your money on. You know, so um, yeah. so so it was by the time I was seventeen, eighteen, myself and my friends had parted ways. Uh, I was just too much hassle for them. You know, it was I was it was just too much, and I didn't blame them. You know, it's it just there it was no no teenagers that have to put up with a friend. You know, with that kind of stuff going on. I mean, the drinking, and um, so then a, a bit by accident, I'm going to say I I met a, a partner. I mean, I was drinking. I was drinking in the house then, so I I didn't go out. I didn't socialise. Didn't go anywhere. Didn't see anybody. And then mm-hmm. I, I met somebody, literally, uh, a, a chap who lived up the road for me, and he said, uh, I've always fancied you, can I take you out for a drink? And I went, oh, yes, I am. So this mm. now, I'm 19 at about this age, this now was my, my avenue into the pub into the because up to this point, I was just drinking in the house, you know? Yeah. And so th- there was almost like the normality to it, you know? There was almost like a, oh, this is what normal people do.
3: But, but mm-hmm. Santa's
2: drinking wasn't normal. Santa used to drink cider, very, very, very sweet cider, and a lot of it. And then I would drink Southern Comfort. hope I'm not, uh, you can beat this out if I'm not meant to say the names of alcohol. Um, and so I I had, to have, I had to have both of them, you know, and he he was like, he was a fine strength And he said, say, Santa, like, what are you doing? They're 19, what are you doing drinking two really strong, you know, alcoholic drinks and I just thought that he was trying to ruin my life. I just thought, what's your problem like? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm spending all my own money. Like, what's your problem? You know? Yeah. So, um, and then I immediately felt he was trying to control me, and he was trying to stop me from having a good time and all that sort of stuff. So, so that relationship lasted for ten years, and it was fraught with arguments and who drank more and and who was in the wrong and. And who made a show of themselves the worst and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. But what happened in that time was my my world became incredibly small geographically. Like I literally lived within a uh, less than a half a mile radius of, of where I lived. You know, uh-huh. the Pope I drank in with him was literally at the back of my house. And I would go there and back, there and back, there and back, there and, back and maybe up to his house. So that was my geographic area. That was my experience. That was my life. Everything that happened in that area is all I knew of the world. Yeah. You know, and I'm late teens, early twenties, mid twenties. And alcoholism just literally had every one of those years, bar the last one. It didn't get 29, but it had all of those years. And it got to a point then where I was no longer fit for work. I physically couldn't go to work. And mm. I started to drink the cheapest of the cheapest of the cheapest drink. And yeah. there was an element of, um, uh, kind of criminality to keep the, the money coming in and, uh, you know, keeping the bu- the booze flowing. So, you know, there was a, a step in that direction that, uh, was quite, you know, back in the eighties, it was, it, it wasn't an easy time in Dublin, you know. Yeah, it was a mm-hmm. very it was a huge unrest in Dublin, so in the country, but um there was a lot of that going on. So, so it could have gone either way. Could have gone either way, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and that was it. I would love to be able to say that my drinking story was really exciting and there was loads of drama and all that sort of stuff. But it was actually incredibly sad and tragic because I didn't live the life that a young woman really had the opportunity to live like my friends, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't get into healthy relationships, I didn't get married, I didn't have children I didn't do any of those normal milestones that you do Um, I Mm -hmm. I say quite frequently, you know I never lost a house, a car or a husband I never got those things you know, they never came into my life, my life was too chaotic my life was extremely unattractive to, to People want to be a part of it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I say my life was it was it was really full of lack, as opposed to drama. There was more and more emptiness, more and more devoid of joy. There wasn't an ounce of joy, not nothing to look forward to. No, no outings because nobody invited me anywhere. You know. Yeah. Uh, and if people did invite me, somebody told me this uh, a few years back. If they did invite me they prayed that I would get drunk so I wouldn't turn up. So, so that was it. That's where drink, drink brought me to that very desperate, lonely place where life, Mm -hmm. life is not really worth living. It's like, well, there's nothing here to even want to stay alive. You know, only for, only for, I didn't want people thinking I was like my dad. I don't know You know, I I I think that kept me the right side of staying alive, to be honest with you. Uh You know? Um, there was something in there that was like, No, you can't be like him, you you can't be seen as him and I would have been terrified of of being diagnosed with a mental illness like whatever about drinking and whatever about getting into trouble was one thing, but I I couldn't cope with the idea of of having a mental illness like that, you know. So In some strange way, you know, that experience actually kept me alive, you know?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so the, 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 the current point came, I was staying up with my sister. I, the relationship I was in, it got very, um, very difficult. Um, and there was other people involved and it, it, was, it was incredibly uncomfortable and difficult to be in the area. So I stayed with my sister for a few weeks. And, uh, managed to do some controlled drinking at that point, uh, because mm-hmm. she wouldn't have any, but she was like, "You're yeah, not drinking the way you drink back in Cabaret. You're not doing it. So, um, yeah. I was like, okay, I can do that. It was torture. Oh, my sweet mother of God on the cross, it was torture. But I did it anyway. And then, um, we had a kind of a, a I'm going to call it a holistic day. We had some... Somebody was doing a reflactology exam or something. I needed models. And I, I, I was the model for the seating. I hate anybody touching my feet. Why? I let the person do it, but I don't know. But I did.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and then, of course, we went out to the pub afterwards, got absolutely ossified, went back to somebody's house, drank a bottle of whiskey, woke up the next morning. And the next morning as I woke up, in the corner of the room, my dead sister at that point, the sister who had died back in 1977, was standing in the corner of the room talking to me. And I'm yeah. I'm like, what the Jesus name is going on? I knew she was dead. I knew she couldn't be there. But she was, she was there. I, that's all I'd say is that she, she was there. I got such a fright. Yeah. I said to my nephew, I jumped up and I said to my nephew, will you come with me? I need to go back home. I need to collect, collect some stuff. And he, he was 14. He was that guy at yeah, I went back to where I was, went to the pub with him. Again, started that drinking that uh, binge back off again. Sent him home at what I thought was 10 o'clock at night. Lucky for me, it was 6 o'clock in the evening. But he was still a 14-year-old child going back to a, a house that he lived in about 30 miles away on two buses in March, in the dark. What bird did there, you know? Um, yeah. And when I, when I, I let him go home and I went down to another pub and while I was sitting there, um, as, as, um, drunk as I would be, I couldn't drink out of pint glass. I had this crazy delusional standard in my head that women didn't drink out of pint glass. It just wasn't like, you know? Yeah. Bearing in mind that I mightn't have washed myself for weeks, week so I hadn't brushed my teeth or I hadn't changed my clothes. <laughs> but I didn't drink out of a pint glass. I had standards, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's done when you think about it. And, um, and as I was pouring uh, this pint of cider into a half-pint glass,
3: mm-hmm. when
2: I put that pint glass down, the only part of that glass I'd seen was the empty part of the glass. That was the only mm-hmm. part i have seen, and I went, oh my God, this stuff is not working anymore. This, I just, in that moment, it, it just all fell away. It literally, was like a, a veil just fell and I, I just knew it wasn't, and I was locked, I was absolutely occupied having been on the piss from 10 o'clock that morning, you know?
3: Mm.
2: So, it was a neighbor of mine down the bar and I asked that the, the person's walking home and they did and they made me put the key in the door and I went to bed And when I woke up the next morning, I, I just couldn't, I can't even begin to tell you how awful it was. And I remember screaming up at the ceiling, you know, I can't fucking do this anymore. Help me. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the most sincere prayer I have ever said in my entire life. Mm -hmm.
3: You
2: know, I got back to my sisters on two buses, like sweating, I was sweating buckets, rattling I had a fiver, oh, yeah. that's all I had left in my pocket from the money that I had, the fiver left. When I got to her house and she opened the door, she said to me, she was human, as you can imagine, having put her child at risk, and uh, she said, I hope you're here to pack your bags, and all of my resolve to ask her for help and to say, I can't do this anymore, I'm so sorry, going out the window, I said to her, yeah, I fucking am. And while I was packing these pathetic clothes that weren't mine—they were second and firsthand hand clothes that came in black bags—I never bought such clothes. As I was packing them into the bags, she came into me and she said, "You want a cup of tea before you go?" And just hear those words before you go. Oh my God, they—they definitely—I because she at that point was the only person in the world that gave any care about me in any way shape or form
3: mm-hmm.
2: and and what came out of my mouth was yes please but what was resounding in my head was shove your fucking cup of tea up your hole. like that <laughs> that's what was in my head But it, what came yeah. out of my mouth was yes please and i and i absolutely called that moment divine intervention and, um, mm-hmm. and when I sat down to that cup of tea that I couldn't lift because I was rattling. You know, I was absolutely rattling. Uh, I said, Mary, I, I know now once I start, I can't stop. I know what you've been saying to me for years. She's been trying to get me to stop for years. I know now I can't stop. And she said, will I call, uh, I think the person's name is Eamon. Will I call Eamon? And I said yes, because I knew Eamon was in the fellowship of friends. And mm-hmm. he came and said to me, have you had enough? And I, I just forced him to fear, and he wasn't having any of it. And he said, you need to answer the question.
3: <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, I've had enough. And he said, are you willing to go to any length? And I said, tell me what to do because I can't keep doing this. And I got to my meeting. Uh, he made a phone call to somebody else who then uh, picked me up and brought me to a meeting, uh, an AA meeting uh, in the city centre, which was a fair bit away from where I live, but that was okay. And when I walked into the room, again, half still rattling and half, like, wondering what the hell. You know, your life is just turned upside down. haven't had a realization like this. And I seen somebody sitting on a table, and I could see this thing moving at her shoulder, and I thought, oh, Jesus, no. I can't be going into the DTs now. Like, just the panic of it. But actually, this turned out to be a man called Dennis, who used to bring his pets to the meetings. And this particular night, Dennis brought a parrot. And, mm-hmm. so, and so there we were in the meeting with Dennis and his parrot, who was just, just looking around, wasn't doing that, and realizing I wasn't actually hallucinating, thank God. Not able to hold the cup of tea because I was afraid of scars myself. And as people were sharing, one person I heard sharing talked about losing his poor son to a drug mm-hmm. overdose. Oh yeah it was awful just awful like the the drug scene in Dublin at that point was just horrendous and um, and there he was talking about being grateful to be there for his wife and his family and the support that he had in the fellowship and my head like my brain was like I couldn't take this in I was going if anyone should be in the pub it's him yeah but I heard, I heard that message. I heard that man saying, I can be as use to my family because I'm not mm-hmm. And right there in that moment, that was the most attractive thing I thought, Could I be a person like that? Could I actually be helpful like that in life? Mm. And then that became that program of attraction that I just kept seeing more of it. The next day I went to a meeting. Up back into the city centre. So when I, when I was asked, we you go to any length? I hate public transport. I would walk, I would walk miles rather than go on the bus. I hate, always have hate buses. I get a paddle Anyway, we got on the mm-hmm. bus back into the city centre and there was a woman sitting across from me, lovely dress, nicely casual dress, lovely jeans and a linen shirt and a lovely blazer. I'll never forget what she was wearing. And there she was talking about the job that she had and how great that she was for it the car she had, how grateful she was for a relationship and how grateful she was for it. And lots of other stuff, all of that stuff that was a million miles away from my life at that moment in time. Yeah. It was, it was just total opposite, you know? And I, I I looked her and I want, I absolutely want what she has. I absolutely want that, you know? Mm-hmm. So then, I, then I was very fortunate that a woman, another woman, who was very brave. I look back on it now, and I go, God, you were brave because I was one angry. I Jesus, I can't even put words in it. I was one angry bitch, you know. I I yeah. was I was ready to take on the world. I only had to look at you, and you went, "Oh, here, it's not, it's not worth it. Too much hassle, you mm-hmm. know." And um, this woman approached me, and she said, "Sandra, I've been watching you. I've been listening to you for a few days." And I'm telling you now, you are not the type of alcoholic that has the time to take the time. You need to start changing now. Mm. You know? And I was yeah. quite taken aback by that. I was like, what do you mean? Because I was laughing on for this two-year business. And um yeah. she was like, all of that stuff in your head was for two years and no drink." And I went, JJ, you've got a point.
3: <laughs> mm. <laughs> you've got a
2: point there, you know? So. um so that was it. That woman must become my sponsor for the next seven or eight years. She moved away after that time, and you know, she since has passed. But we saved in touch and that sort of stuff. And uh, and she got me to a place where she helped me to understand what happened when I put drink into me. What happened to my mind? What happened to my body? And mm-hmm. and how my life was so unmanageable. Couldn't figure it out. Couldn't figure out why it wasn't everybody else's fault. So all I did was have a few drinks, However, that wasn't the case at all. So that that's my my you know, that was starting my recovery journey and it's been since then, what's happened since then, Lord God, it's it all happened since then. In fact, more disasters happened to me in sobriety than they ever did when I was drinking. Like I've been in a fire and an I nearly died. I was in a car crash and an I nearly died. I got beaten up by a mother absolutely bet the crap out on me that they thought I was dead and I wasn't so all of this mad just happened when I got sober but I was able to yeah. I was able to handle it because I was sober you know uh-huh. um, and thanks to God the day the time I haven't taken a drink since that first meeting with Dennis but it's is, uh, is, on his show <laughs> 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 and um, yeah uh, it's, it's been a it's been a a quite a whirlwind. It's like twenty-five years sounds like a, a a long time, but actually, as I'm talking about those initial days, I it's almost like that only happened last week. You know, like I'm I'm so connected to it how how wonderful it was. Release—that's the word I would say—was the release of finding out what was wrong with me, why I didn't drink like my friends, and that there was something to do about it that I could actually move away from that and have some semblance of like like the people I was looking around and saying I want to say, have.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah. um, so that's been that's kind of my that's really my story up to up to today. You know, I I go to AA, I have um uh, a local group. I moved away from the city centre by the local group which is closed now because of COVID. And I mm-hmm. happened in COVID um I'm on Twitter. And I'm sure, you know, some of the guys, I'm sure we've got a lot of guys in common that we, we know from Twitter. And um, yeah. we had started up this recovery hour, literally called recovery hour, to do maybe some sort of a, a, a Twitter chat, you know, and, and kind of engage the conversation of recovery. That was a week mm-hmm. before COVID. COVID hit and I thought, you know what, let's just put a Zoom meeting on because we're going to be moving online, you know, to, to manage this. We probably won't be going back to meetings. For a month or
3: so
2: and yeah. um, and so i set up this recovery hour meeting which takes the format of a fellowship meeting but we're all inclusive so people can uh, if they're alcoholics anonymous that's fine if they're narcotics anonymous that's fine but basically we're all in this together we're all recovering together we know each other from twitter that's their common bond we're supporting each other anyway and we're building relationships anyway so let's bring this into the room not for one minute that this was going to be five months down the road. We're still doing it seven nights a week. Mm. I'm very glad that we're I know, it's amazing. That's been amazing. And people have stepped up and they take up hosting positions and, you know, they find speakers and, you know, the community are really invested in keeping this going because we've built some wonderful relationships, you know. Um, Uh Got to know each other a little bit better, got to know each other's story. We started then looking at uh, bringing in uh, groups like Alanon and adult children of alcoholics, uh, overeaters, just to help us understand the different facets of things in yeah. our lives, uh, of recovery, that it's not just about us being the addict or the alcoholic and what we have to do. It's, it's getting an, a, a vision of what that's like for the people. And it's just been amazingly healing, you know, amazingly mm-hmm. healing um and that's that's my journey guys it's been it here in dublin and anywhere i've been in the world you know anywhere i've been in the world america canada uh over europe you know any countries i've been to in europe like aa has always been there they've been on the end of the phone they've come and they picked me up they brought me to meetings they dropped me back you know people brought me to the houses you know it's it's amazing that you can go anywhere in the world and you have people who completely understand what it's like to be on your own in a different country, not necessarily knowing the rules or how things work in that country, and helping negotiate mm-hmm. that. Country, you know, and um, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just mind blowing. Like I, no matter there was no amount of drink that was ever going to give me that wonderful life that I have today. Mm. You
3: know,
2: um, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool, all right, pretty cool, we've had some crazy adventures in recovery, but that might come up in the later chat.
0: <laughs> yeah, all right, well, we definitely got some questions for you, uh, if you don't mind, Eric, I would like to go to first.
1: Go ahead. All right,
0: all right, all um, right, hmm. all right, my first question, I'm at, I'm actually going to do two questions, Eric, so I'm, I'm stealing two questions, um. So my first question is: Do you believe that you can get through absolutely anything sober?
2: Absolutely, yes, yes. And and I've been through uh, what you know, just the birth, the death, the marriages, and none of them mine. In sobriety, Mm -hmm. so I've I've had people very close people. I've been in relationships where people have died. Um, I've walked in. I've been in a fire, as I said. I've been beaten to a pulp. Um, uh, what else I've been in car crashes crazy stuff like crazy 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 stuff that people people might say you know, again my thinking if anyone you know should be drinking at all but absolutely the fellowship tells me a drink won't sell stuff. Mm-hmm. stuff so, and it doesn't and the other thing apart from those physical things that go on in the world some of yeah. the most trickier things that have happened for me are kinds of realizations about myself. As I've walked through the steps and I would go through the steps every year, every year I would still do a fourth and a fifth step. Because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not perfect and I I messed up and I need to fix it. I need to make it right. Yeah, But the realizations I've had about myself have been the things that I've found more difficult to deal with. The car crash was fine. I went to the hospital the doctor did that thing. You you do your recuperation. You do what you're told and you get on with it. it. You know, but all the other things, you do what the the advice is. Those internal things when you're on your own, that's when it changes for me. That's when I'm going,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I, I don't really like this and I don't want anybody else to know. So if I've got through them without a drink, then absolutely I believe you can get through anything sober. All right.
3: Awesome.
0: All right. And my next question is kind of a, a compound question. So, um is the Irish stereotype of drinking culture, is it accurate and detrimental to Ireland itself? And is recovery from alcoholism more difficult when you're surrounded by that drinking culture?
2: Yeah. It's the stereotype. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for me, stereotype, there's always a grain of truth, or there's a, there's a, a cluster of a particular behaviour that stereotypes are formed from and they get exaggerated beyond recognition, but they, of they go somewhere. So but so I definitely think the um the stereotype is there and we have the name of the fighting Irish and the drinking Irish and the drunk mm-hmm. Irish. So that comes from a, an older culture of, you know, our our way of telling stories and our way of passing on our heritage and our lineage, you know, they're the mm-hmm. centered around the, the alcohol. Um but yeah. there you can't deny it, you know, I mean they called paddy wagon after Irish people because there were so many Irish drunk people in the back of them. You know? Yeah. That's why it's called paddy wagon, you know? Um yeah. so it's there, yes. Yeah, it, it is there. Is it detrimental to Ireland? Um I think maybe there's a balance there of personality traditions, um, you know, a lot of people, their heritage would come back to Ireland, their ancestors would yeah. come back to Ireland. There's a sense of, of you know, wanting to belong to that. So I think we've enough nice stuff to balance out the other stuff. We're almost forgiven, I think. Irish people are forgiven quite a lot for their behaviour because it's nearly a get-out-of-jail-free card, isn't it? After they're, they're Irish, like, what do you
0: uh, you, you, you're just a country of sweethearts and we love you
2: <laughs> can't understand the goddamn word they're saying but we love them <laughs> 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 but yeah i think it's I, I do think it's fair it's a sentimental um i i have to be honest i don't know that i've ever i've ever seen experience it detrimental in that way I think it becomes part of the bigger picture of what people mm-hmm. see about uh, Ireland but the second part of your question, yes it is, I mean there are pubs everywhere in, in Ireland like there just yeah. is uh, my local pub was literally you know, uh, less than a two minute walk away um, yeah. but I think when that thing when that thing changed in me when that that um The fact that psychic change happened, it doesn't matter how many pubs are there because alcohol and drinking and all of that no longer was something I was drawn to. I had seen the attractiveness of people in the room. I seen the light I had. I wanted it. That's where my focus went. I wanted to do whatever I could to get what they had. Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, like, I was yep. in America, I was in Texas, and uh, I was brought to a meeting, and the man, there was a, a women's um, support house. I think it was women who, who may have uh, been pregnant or had very young children, and mm-hmm. it was just women. And when I arrived, the guy, the big tall man, I'll never forget, it was the six foot six, foot 2, I was like, you know, neck craned back to look at him, and he said, yeah. I, "I think you might have more in common with these ladies. Would you mind doing the speaking?" And I said, "Yes, yeah, sure." And he said to me, um, "Can you talk for forty-five minutes? I said, "For forty-five minutes, half." And I was, let me think about that for a minute. So okay. oh, I'm, I'm female. I'm Irish. and I'm alcoholic. You want forty-five minutes on each? You know. <laughs> 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 he was like, "Okay." So, so it was fine, but people kept saying that to me about pubs in Ireland. And I said, well, I have driven by places that are just like what well, we call the off license. I'm not sure what the language, what you call them there in, in America, but like, they, they, these places that people just drive to and buy quite the booze, it, it was exactly the same there as it was here. It was so yeah. accessible, you know. Yeah. So, um, So maybe that stereotype, you know, just just people thinking about that a little bit more than I thought they did, you know, but I was seeing the yeah. exact same in their countries as we see
0: Totally. And, and I just think that, that, um, for, for alcoholics specifically, I think it's a little bit more difficult, um, because your, your, your drug dealers are right on the corner in in big neon lights like that. And it's, and it's, quote-unquote socially acceptable to go into the pub or the bar or whatever. So I, I think alcoholism suit or alcoholics have a, a, a little extra challenge when it comes to recovery because it's always right there and and yeah, um, yeah it's right in broad daylight.
2: Yeah, and legal, and it's legal and... And you it's know, legal,
0: exactly. It's a big big difference.
2: You can't buy a greeting card without seeing a glass of champagne if it's some sort of congratulations. There's some sort of alcohol yeah. beverage on the greeting card. So it's embedded in our society that celebrations are around alcohol and if you're not, you're yep. a dry shite kind of thing. That's, that's what we say over here, dry out sites, you know, and I'm going, well, bring me to your and love, and I'll show you who's a dry site, you know? So, um, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it is
0: part of that, that, that culture. Yeah. All <clears> right. <throat> what do you got, Eric?
1: So, Before um, we went into the questions, you mentioned uh, the recovery hour and one of the things that I I like that you were talking about and I just I kind of want to get your experience because I feel that this is something I think COVID is going to um, definitely grow this at a much quicker rate. Than previously, but you were talking about bringing you know people from AA and people from NA and learning about Al-Anon or um, adult children of alcoholics um, and different fellowships and th- like different thought leadership within the recovery community um, together, and it, it's something yeah. that I know for us at podcast recovery, it's you know it's part of our mission is. That, I, you know, Mm -hmm. to be quite honest, I don't care if you're a gambler, if you're an alcoholic, if you're a drug addict, if you're a cutter, if, you know, you're bulimic, whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. We all have the same problem. Um, It's just different ways that it manifests within ourselves. So how, my question is, how has this experience of bringing these people together and, um, you know, being a part of of it, you know, kind of at like a leadership level, like, what is this kind of teaching you? you know, what new things is it teaching you about your own recovery?
2: Oh, it's it's been it's been phenomenal. I, I like well the first meeting was on the eighteenth of March and when I set up the Zoom for the next month or wherever of meetings, we keep the date, you know, we keep the date eighteenth of March because it's just
0: that the day day after after St. Patrick's
3: Day. Day after St. Patrick's Day, exactly. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
2: We we, we, yeah, it was a bit like yeah, we let Paddy's day go, and then we catch them the next day when they're when they're full of uh, remorse. Yeah, when they're
0: when they're good and hungover. (laughs) (laughs) Little
2: is on the vulnerable side. That's when you get them exactly. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) So so it was the eighteenth of March was the first one, and it was it was with the intention of covering the first two weeks of lockdown here in Ireland. Uh, up to the 29th or 30th of March, wherever the date was. And then that got extended into April. And I suppose as well as initially it started off as just people who knew each other on Twitter, who chatted and that sort of stuff, just to keep us together in that kind of community way. But it became very apparent very quickly that when people were talking about their experience, like I I identified listening to a chat from uh, Gamblers Anonymous.
3: hmm Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> Story, and I was talking. I was thinking about uh, my gambling habits now, and I talked about maybe, maybe ten years ago, maybe fifteen years ago, actually. But I began to realize that I was actually doing this to chase money. So it wasn't the case of uh here I'll throw a fiver on the locker and then I'll check it next week and then what most people do, like people mm-hmm. buy the lottery ticket, like to have a drink if they can take it or leave it. But I was actually trying to be strategic about this. No, I was very successful. <laughs> I was very successful. I was winning a lot of money. But, but what triggered for me was, I actually, I actually realized that I was, I was chasing this, that I was, it was this need I had to do, even though I had the money. It's not like I was trying to get money because I'm broke. I actually just, I just wanted to keep doing it. And I heard in my head, a bit like that time with the pint glass, I heard in my head, "I will always provide for you," and i, I got that moment. Every time I think about that again, I, I get quite emotional. It's like it's almost like I—I I had stopped trusting the very thing that had given me the gift of sobriety by chasing this—this yeah. this money, you know—and and I stopped. Yeah. I literally stopped in that moment, and it was the same with cigarettes. I literally, when I realized this bloody thing has control over me, and I'm—I'm not—I'm not having that. That was stopped in the moment as well. So listening to that guide helped me understand that I didn't just do you know, do the lothow in the bookies, because I did it in the bookies, there was better money there. It wasn't just that thing that got a little bit out of hand. I had at the very least a huge dependency on this that I needed it mm. to feel I was in control in some way. And I hadn't connected yeah. with that level, you know the other recovery that I had was around my use of over-the-counter medication.
3: Mm-hmm. And how
2: easily I would go to codeine products for, uh, for headache. And, and I would hide them. In, I would put them in soluble tablets. I noticed a few times I was in, in uh, America, they don't seem to give you soluble stuff. It's either tablet form or maybe a powder that will be dissolved. But over here, it's yeah. soluble tablets that will, they'll, they'll, they will dissolve. And, um, and before I knew what I was, I was, you know, having a 40 pack of, of, of a codeine over the counter, um, medication for my headache that it was causing in the first place. Mm-hmm. You
3: know,
2: so, so yeah. it, it brings it to those levels that brings me to, it brings me anyway, to those depths of just how disconnected I get and be disconnected for a long time and not realize it. Yep. And if I can do that with this and that, I can do it with anything. And the one main thing, guys, I have to I have to be honest, one of the things that I in million years I never would have thought would have helped me but over mm-hmm. I never I just kinda of thought, Yeah, well look come here, if I stopped eating the rubbish I'd be grand but when this lady came in and started to talk about her relationship with food, I never ever thought about me and food as having a relationship. And it was as toxic and as as unhelpful as any relationship that mm-hmm. I'm drinking. hmm So it opened doors and it's brought me to depths of understanding that I would never have such space with if I hadn't just kept going to my one fellowship.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm 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 sure I can speak for Eric. I, I think uh us here at Podcast Recovery, being uh able to get all those different perspectives from so many different uh, fellowships or avenues of recovery, especially, and Eric, Eric, especially, uh, is a thumper about the, the relationship with food. And it's something that, that needs to be talked about more. Um, honestly, especially here in America, because we're, we're the fucking worst. And, um, uh, it's, 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 it's a common thing, uh, to really substitute from whatever your your drink or drug of choice was, it's like, oh well this is i'm i'm, I'm substituting with food, but all, most often it's sugar, and yes. sugar is just so bad for you and and it and it, it takes a toll on people in recovery and everybody talks about that recovery fifteen uh those those extra pounds you put on in those first couple of years because you're just eating your feelings
2: Yeah, absolutely absolutely yes <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah.
0: All right. So my next question is sort of going to go back to uh, the beginning of your story a little bit and, uh, and try and tie it into your recovery a little bit. So with all that, um, like childhood trauma, um, I, I mean, that, that stuff lingers for a long time. And I'm sure there were a lot of open wounds for a long time in, in, during your drinking, um, So in recovery, how did you go about dealing with those? Like, did did it really come out through the step work or did you have to seek outside help, like therapy or anything? Like, what what did you have to do to really process that trauma in a healthy way?
2: Yeah, it it was kind of a bit of both. The step work was the start. Um, Mm -hmm. Helped me in in telling a bit of the story. And I I had a a very understanding sponsor who uh, wasn't interested in the story was interested in uh, the defects of character that, that uh, informed how I negotiated all of that. But having said that, she was very clear about her scope of role and um, didn't allow me to see her in a different light like than the day before. So I was, very, I was very glad that I had a sponsor who was very soundly around certain things and the father was one of them. Now, when I was explaining the story, I was talking to her like this. I went, I would say things about my dad and my mother and all that, you know, when I had my foot bath after uh, my dad uh, had taken his life because it was his neck and his wrist, so there was quite a lot of arterial bleed. And when I had Mm -hmm. my foot bath, the the blood started to ooze out of the tiles. you know, in the bathroom. I couldn't have a horror movie. But I yeah it was really weird like and even though I was like oh yeah that's daddy's that blood like you know that's not a normal response to seeing blood coming off the water <laughs> no you know so she she was like Sandra do you realise how you're talking about that story like it's just you're telling me like oh I had a walk on the beach and it was lovely and the water was cold and I yeah very
0: yeah. matter
3: of factly
2: exactly exactly so so I said to her but well, sure, I was always talking about this in the pub. I that story was a huge currency for me in the pub. As soon as I started mm. talking about that, people would give me drinks. They'd shut me up. They didn't want to hear it. Because it was an uncomfortable story to hear. And by yeah. God did I milk that for every bottle of cider I could get out of that.
3: Mm.
2: Milked it. Yeah. So while I had these gaping wounds, I you know, I used them to, to be the alcoholism, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, and I was a bit like that in early recovery where I just talked like very detached on it. And it was that had said, We need to help you get next with that, but that's not that's not within the scope of my role. So I did go to therapy, but we did the, the programme, we worked that parallel to that. You know, the counselor mm-hmm. wanted me to work only on the emotional stuff. And I just, I just kept going I want what she has. I want, yes. what she has. and I'm willing to do what she did. And if she's saying that I can do this, I trust her. You know, And over time, the counselor did kind of, you know, had to kind of say, "We're well, not well." But and I'm glad I did it that way because I I needed I needed to know that my, I suppose my intuition, if you like, or my like, gut feeling was right,
3: mm-hmm. And I got
2: it wrong so many times. So it was a bit of both. It yeah. was the network and it was the power combined, you know, really helped to, um, uh, integrate the healing, you know? Um,
3: yeah,
2: but it did take, it did take a number of years, like 20 years for that to finally cement. I did a. I'll tell you about that later if you want me to say that and about that, but it did take about 20 years for finally to let go of the blame. All right. All right.
1: Hmm.
0: What you got, Eric?
1: You, you took my question on trauma. Um,
0: I know I did. I know uh, I did.
1: I I think I think it's about that time then, David.
0: It, well, well, can I ask one more fun question? Sure.
1: Sure. You
0: yeah. know what the fun question is.
1: Um, wait, is <laughs> it? Right, is, is it? Wait, is it? Um, Sandra, have you seen you know the show Dairy Girls?
2: Oh my God. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Great show, right? Great show. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Porsche? Dairy Girls. The dairy Girls. Uh, I have not. It's on Netflix. Check yeah. it out. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I will. All right,
0: Sandra. My my question to you is, what is the weirdest this is a fun question. So what's the weirdest thing that you have found about Americans?
2: The weirdest things I found really about Americans. Uh uh Oh, Lord, My God, let me think now. There's nothing kind of about mercy. they probably um they think that Ireland is is British. I think that they think that we are um that we're not Really? British. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um well, so ah. people, people have said to me, "Are, are you British?" and I say, "No, I'm Irish." And they going, yes British."
0: Wow. <laughs> that's so insulting. Yeah, like I, I feel insulted for you. Like that's why I didn't want to comment on your accent because, like, I've I've done that before. Like I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to deign to insult an Irish person and say they sound like an English so, person. So, so hold I on. I really don't. Well,
1: well, wait. What
0: what accent? And I wouldn't call any of you Scottish. That's a that's a drastic insult. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean that what I'm saying that that's weird is I I think what what I find weird about it is is that there's a, a some sort of a disconnect that I'm seeing that it's am nation and and they're not processing it it's like it's, it's, we're not it's, always
0: the smartest bunch.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was to look, every 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 country has it, its group of people where that's it, But, but no, I think... It's just, oh, I'll tell you one weird thing. Let me tell you one weird thing about being in America and being Irish. Uh, we were in, uh, myself and my friends were doing a Tony Robbins course, uh, a date with destiny, and um, we were staying somewhere that was about 20 minutes away from where the hotel was, and it was a lovely place, it was very nice. But there the these three old ladies, and I kid you not, it was like being an episode of The Golden Bear, right? <laughs> <laughs> It was, it was wonderful. I actually thought are these really are these real Golden Girls? But anyway, as you get talking and where are you from, away from Ireland and she started to stroke me like a cat and she was like, I I've never met a real Irish person and she listened to my cat. and I find that that well um that's probably the, the the most response, I guess, from Americans is is that when they find out that you're actually from Ireland there's this like you're almost like a celebrity. Yeah,
3: it's true. That is true. Yeah.
2: So, so yes, yeah, that's probably. I'm like I'm just fan velocity from average government Like, what are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> there you go. That's that's probably the, the the. I hope that was a fun answer in 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 response to that because uh,
1: yeah, no, so I don't want to be angry.
0: I respond. Oh, fine. Were you going to say something, Eric? I think you got cut off.
1: Uh, No, no. Go ahead, David.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Well, Eric, you said it was that time. I think it's time, ladies and gentlemen, all our listeners, to go to the Twitter. What do we got, Eric?
1: So this one is from uh, State Stopped. And um, the way this works, uh, Sandra, is you'll go first, and then David, and then myself. And the question slash topic for this week um, is being bored in recovery and needing to find a purpose.
3: Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, I know that one very well. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm, I'm answering these. Is it giving you an answer to this, this uh, topic? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just okay. your experience. Uh,
2: uh, yeah, perfect. And and I think I I would have hit those boredom points at any times where you go. Is this it? Is this is this it? Like because it's almost like you melt into into wallpaper. Uh, mm-hmm. But but I I kid you not. I am always brought back to the two people I told you about. That person who lost three of the sons and was grateful. And that lady that I looked at, I meant I want, I want what she had. And you just want to accept that boredom is a part of life. Everybody gets bored. It's not just people recovery you know. As long as I don't do mm-hmm. anything damaging, then I can I can negotiate the boredom.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, my I, I I think boredom is uh one of the danger zones for any addict or or alcoholic because. Um, I I think that that free time and no direction is, is dangerous because we can easily fall into old behaviors and, and I think that can happen like a little bit further into recovery. I think when you're new in recovery, you have so much and you're, you're so, uh, inspired and desperate for a new way of life that you're willing to really push yourself in recovery but after so many years and some sometimes complacency can set in like you've been to all the meetings you've heard all the stories um, but really uh, finding a purpose in recovery is 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 paramount and if it, it if it just starts with you doing the work and then helping somebody else uh, do the work to uh, something like podcast recovery where Eric and I like are, are literally on a mission to uh, really broaden the scope of recovery across the world and, and really break down a lot of those borders between the fellowship and uh, bring a new, new form of recovery to everybody. Um, it, it's important. Yeah. Like try to avoid uh, boredom and complacency as much as you can. And um yeah, f- find whatever purpose you serve in recovery, whether it's area service or H&I or sponsorship or just uh, at your local uh, meeting, just making coffee or being the secretary or whatever it is. Um, it's important to stay active in your recovery, whatever that may be.
1: So I guess. Uh, hmm. With being bored in recovery, I I think that's more of like, as you're going, and like you just said, David, where in the beginning, everything's fresh, everything's new. Like each meeting yeah. is new, each speaker is new, each book is new, like everything's new, you know, and, but after you hear that same speaker for the fifth time, um, <laughs> and, you know, what's coming up next? Like, Oh, we're going to find out where you bought drugs again. Like, okay, yeah. cool. Um, so you, you get a little bored. And I I think one of the things that I guess I do for my life to ch- like, make sure that my recovery isn't boring is that I keep trying to expand. Like one of the things that at least for me that, um, like, I I mean, I've read the basic text a bunch of times I've read, the big book a few times uh, it, there's a point where I just can't read it over and over again. And, you know, to, mm-hmm. any, to anyone who can, like, that's awesome. But like, I, I do need new things to put in my toolkit so that, you know, the old like tools don't get, you know, when they get dull, I have something that works. Um, so I think that's one thing that I do is, you know, it's, and like, I know self-help books get kind of a bad rap and like all this other stuff, but there's more than just going to meetings and, um, you know, working the program, like, you know, me going on a walk with my dog and my wife, like a few times a week, like in the woods, like that, that is like making sure my recovery doesn't get boring. Um, like figuring out new ways, mm-hmm. like to work out, like, you know, find like doing things for me. Right. Like, cause recovery isn't just not using Recovery is, yeah. you know, getting better and like part of getting better isn't just not doing drugs. It's like, oh, like you want it to learn how to play guitar, learn how to play guitar, like learn like better yourself because that's what recovery is. It's, it's not if you fall into the trap of thinking that recovery is just about like being abstinent, you're missing the point of what recovery can truly be.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. All right. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest Sandra for joining us from across the pond today. Woo! Thank, you. Yay! <laughs>
2: thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Of course, absolutely. Uh, why don't you? Uh, we're going to give you one last minute to uh, say, talk to anybody out there who's listening, who's struggling, needs to hear a message of hope what do you have to say then say to those people and, uh, let, let people know where they can find you.
2: Sure. On Twitter, you can find me at recovery hour and there's a whole, we're connected with the recovery fussy hashtag as well. So, uh, one way or the other, you'll, you'll find us in there and the website is coming up very soon. If I stop changing it, I could actually publish it, but there you go. That's the alcoholic mind. And, um, the message of hope, and I just like on the back of what the two guys talked there about boredom, and yes, it is very dangerous. And when I'm saying it's part of life, it is part of life, and it's how we get mm-hmm. through it and how we perceive it. Being bored mm-hmm. doesn't mean I have to act out on something, you know? Absolutely. Um, and, and I suppose it, it, it's part of the normalizing of, you know, this is my bridge to normal living, and being bored is part of that. It's how I manage it that that makes the difference. My message of hope for people is it doesn't matter whether you think you have a problem or whether you know you have a problem, life is so much better once you start investigating how you negotiate that problem. Because if average drinkers and social drinkers don't sit there going or people who are using drugs, they don't sit there going, I wonder if I have a problem. You know, mm-hmm. if people are asking that question, they're asking it for a reason. Explore it. Think about if you're listening to this podcast, you're listening to people who have X amount of time under their belt and while time is not to thing to lead with all the time, it is possible to know that you can have long-term recovery, not pick up or relapse to a uh, a where you were before long term sobriety and recovery is possible and a good life is even more possible when you don't pick up like that lady I've seen that lady I've seen was 20 years sober and I just thought who yeah. just yeah, 20 years sober she did because she worked the program and because of her mm-hmm. sitting there talking about her recovery and her life I'm sitting here today talking to you guys and your listeners Long-term recovery is absolutely possible and a really good life, walking your dog, investing in your relationship, all of that stuff is so much more possible when you don't pick up.
0: Absolutely. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Sandra. You're very welcome. Thank you. Here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and podcast recovery is here to provide it. I'm going to turn it over to Eric for our message of media.
1: (laughs) The message of media. I I see you're you're workshopping that. Um, but That won't be bad. It wasn't bad. Well, we'll have to work on it. Uh, you know, here at Podcast mm-hmm. Recovery, we are fully self-supporting. So if you would like to become a member of the home group, please visit our Patreon in the description below. And, you know, don't hesitate to put a few dollars in the digital basket um, with our Venmo or PayPal. Uh, again, we are fully self-supporting and we are looking to bring even more content to everyone in the near future um you know so uh-huh. please you know feel free to help us out and uh back to david like a weatherman yep. uh,
0: just like eric, <laughs> eric said follow like weatherman. us on check us out on face facebook twitter instagram youtube for more information about eric carly Allie, and myself go to podcastRecovery.com. but most importantly everybody out there stay safe and stay clean